0: Episode seventy-two, Satish Dawan Space Centre. Hello and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit amateur astronomy podcast produced by me, Guru Bia Singh, an amateur astronomer based in the UK. For more information, see the About and FAQ pages at www. Org. Located about 80 kilometers from Chennai, on India's east coast, Satish Dhawan Space Centre is used by ISRO to launch all of its satellites, including those to the Moon and Mars. Also known as Sriharikota, it was established during the late 1960s. But today, it has a vehicle assembly building, two launch pads, and a state-of-the-art Mission Control Centre. In this episode, Dr. M.Y.S. Prasad, the Director at Satish Dhawan Space Centre, describes the key services and activities that take place at India's 21st-century rocket launch complex. Dr. M.Y.S. Prasad, Director of Satish Dhawan Space Centre, a distinguished engineer, and very recently, the holder of the Vikram Sarabhai Memorial Award, 2014 Congratulations! Thank you.
1: Very much. Um, you have a very
0: long connection with Israel.
1: When did it start? I passed out of the college in 1974. You know, almost 34 now. Then I joined an uh, engineering college as a lecturer for the electronics department. And within a few months, I got a interview call in the Israel, and I joined the Vikram Sarabhai Space Center in Chivanda in May 1975. So it's almost but this May, it will be 40 years. Right. Uh, you have worked in many
0: areas within Israel, but right now you're the director here at uh, Sri Harry Potter. What kind of facilities are here, what do, does Israel use
1: Sri Harry Potter? See the Sri Harikwata Island, this is an island cut off with the backwaters as well as a lake, the full on the western side, full cut lake. This island was very very sparsely populated, very few people. So in the early uh, late 60s, it was decided by Professor Vikram Sarabhai that this is the place where there is going to be launch center for Israel. And over years it has developed, I should say over almost uh, four and a half decades, it has developed into what it is today. Today we have large entities, first of all uh, this centre has got about 2000 regular employees and another 2500 people work on contract basis, so about 4500 people work here. And we have an annual budget of roughly 550 crore rupees in India, Mm -hmm. uh, which is equal to something like 100 million dollars. Right. Okay, 100 million US dollars. Now, we have uh, solid propellant manufacturing facility here. Two facilities, two plants. We manufacture solid propellant. And we manufacture both of them put together something like 700 tons of propellant per and then we have another entity which is uh, uh, which is dedicated for the liquid propellants and the cryogenic propellants and there we procure and store maintain and service them and when we have uh, count down the propellant loading into the launch vehicle. All these actions take place. And that entity uh, stores something like 500 tons of propellants already here. So, 500 tons. So, is that uh, cryogenic and liquid or what yeah. together? Both put together. Cryogenic is a smaller quantity, but larger quantity is the earth's storable propellants. Because we use them in the large, in the bigger stages. Then we have another entity called uh, Solid Motor Performance Monitoring and the Environmental Test Facilities. That entity does all the ground tests on the small size motors to characterize the solid propellant what we manufacture and the small-scale casting. Whenever you manufacture a big rocket motor, Mm -hmm. we also manufacture a small sample right. to find out exactly its mechanical and ballistic properties. Mm-hmm. So, all that is carried out by this entity in addition to vibration, shock, acoustics and the vacuum tests, Some of the mortars have to file in the vacuum. So, we have small vacuum chambers in which we can file a motor and get its properties. So, that is another entity. And we have another big entity called Vehicle Assembly and Launch Facilities. So, they prepare all the subsystems. Mm -hmm. Basically, a launch vehicle is built here. But subsystems come from different centers of history. So, various subsystems and the satellite all converge here for a launch. So, each of them has to be prepared, to be tested, final assembly, for example, certain separation system you cannot assemble and transport, you have to assemble here. Right. And certain wire tunnels connecting different segments have to be connected here. Uh So, that type of activity is carried out separately. So, we have subsystem preparation. Uh And for example, if we bring a cryostate, we have to do absolute uh, measurement about the integrity of the insulation system Uh and leak checks and, (laughs) and, and, and various tests we have to do on each subsystem. Each e subsystem will prepare. Then the solid propellant rockets are big, big motors. We call them the big motors. We start stacking, and the liquid propellant motors and uh, stages which come from outside we test and move them. So all subsystems are prepared. Satellite is tested. They are all moved to the launch facility and integrated in the launch facility. Integrated by our team yes. as well as from the teams of the other centers. Yes. So yes. that entity is called Vehicle Assembly and Launch Facilities. Right. So and then we have another big entity called Range Operations. Right. The Range Operations uh, is uh, to take care of all the data, uh-huh. computer networks and connecting all of them. Uh-huh. And then we have a network of six uh, radars uh-huh. and and a large number of meteorological facilities uh-huh. to. Forecast to monitor and forecast the weather, especially during launch time, it's very critical. Mm -hmm. And and we have the timing, generation, distribution all over, so that all people work on a precise time. And then communications, and communications with external world like air traffic control, sea control, coast guard control, so various uh, operations related with the launch. And post-launch, till satellite is injected into the orbit, it is the responsibility of Satishdon space center to track and exactly show the trajectory and also to get the orbit and then preliminary orbit and hand over to the satellite managing centers, okay. So that is another entity. So we have the solid propellant manufacturing mm-hmm. two, two plants, right, and liquid propellant uh, storage and servicing, mm-hmm. and vehicle assembly, and the preparations, and launch facilities, we have two launch facilities, right. and then the range operations. Mm-hmm. And these are the major technical entities. Now, for 4,000 4, people, for 5.5 crore, that's quite a lot five,
0: you do. 550 five crore. 550 crore. Five <laughs> yeah. five crore, 100 billion U.S. dollars. Yes. That's quite that's a lot you do here. Yeah. One center. Yes. It's, uh, now, you, you said the, um, um, you, you store the liquid and cryogenic fuel fuels here and all of the satellites and various components come from other centers. How are they transported here? Are they tra- come here by road or because you're on the coast, by
1: sea? The liquid propellants, you mean, are That's the stages. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 for example, for the solid propellant to cast... The rocket motor case is manufactured in some industries outside, and that is transported by road, by road, by road. And satellite is transported by road from Bangalore to here. And the liquid propellants, what we procure, are, are the liquid nitrogen or such cryo liquids, they're all transported in the containers. The, we have an organization called PESO. Petroleum and Explosives Safety Organization in the country. Uh Every operation of any explosive liquid storage in the country has to be under their license. So, all our transporting vehicles etc. are licensed by them after a thorough testing and inspection. And we have to have maintained them in a periodical manner. For example, even a tank in which we uh, we, we store the propellant inside has to be tested once in four years fully. That means you have to remove the whole propellant and test it for its integrity and show the results to them, get it approved and then again we can do it. So we follow all these processes. I remember a story, uh, it was just before your time when
0: uh, the very first rocket launch, the Nike Apache yes. from this is Tumba yes. and uh, they have the same problem with um, the payload this is a sodium container came from France yes. Professor yes. Bamo yes. raised that and they had the same problem because it's explosive device they had difficulty getting the clearance so I understand yes. that so you don't use
1: sea transport
0: for any of this it's
1: all by road we uh, so far not in India Mm -hmm. for our own launches, okay. But once we had uh, sent certain, on commercial basis, Mm -hmm. we have launched certain uh, small uh, rockets, sounding rockets Mm -hmm. from Norway. So we transported it on ships. In fact, the the rocket mortar transportation Uh is not very serious. In the sense, it is it is it does not come under the category of high explosives. Yeah. It is quickly combustible, but so not a highly yeah. but not high explosive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas high explosives transportation is much more serious, uh-huh. and you have to follow many more regulations. And you don't have uh, any airports here. You've got plenty of space.
0: Maybe sometime in the future you can have a runway here and get
1: greater links. Yeah. Uh, we have a helipad here, uh-huh. where three helicopters can land at a time. Okay. So On launch,
0: you are in the control centre, and you've done this many times. And, you know, rocket science has been around for some time, but still is not risk-free. When the countdown comes down to, let's say, T-minus 10 seconds, as the director of all of this, all the things have to come together. What are your feelings? How do you feel at that time?
1: Yeah, it's a very uh, critical time. First of all, when we reach almost T-minus 10 seconds, yes. we are almost 50 percent in relaxed state because yes. all the actions which are supposed to be completed before that have been successfully That's completed. Right. Okay. Now the question of only next few seconds. Right. And then uh, we also uh, do not uh, uh, you know, every every second when they are giving the countdown, I will be personally thinking about the next action, right. and and I'll be organizing my uh, which which uh, uh, which computer monitor to see, which line in the display to see, see right. which number to see. Right. So exactly, uh, I, mean, I should say I have never felt there is time to worry about. Okay, our worries are much before, not from t minus ten seconds. Our worries will be when we are loading the whole propellant into the launch vehicle. For example, we have to load in GSLV something like two hundred and twenty tons of absorbable propellant, right. highly toxic, right. and there should not be any leakage. Mm. That is the time where we feel more uh, more tense right. than the last few seconds. Oh, I see. Right. Yes. Okay. Because dealing with that kind of deal yeah. is very... those important. operations are much more critical.
0: And I watch you on, on TV. This is all transmitted live. Having a TV crew looking at everything you're doing,
1: that must add
0: to the pressure and
1: tension of the day. No, we are, we are accustomed to blank out everything except <laughs> the two, three monitors in front of us. Okay.
0: The most recent launch uh, was the... GSLV-3, with the Sahib module, crew module, it was, wasn't occupied, but it was a suborbital flight, and it was a GSLV Mark III. How is that much different from the ones that you do normally, mostly GSLVs?
1: Yeah, it's uh, different from two three angles. Number one is the, the two solid rocket motors, which will ignite and take it out, I mean, lift lift off happens. Those two solid motors are the biggest solid motors which we have manufactured in ISRO and in Starcet. Right. <coughs> Each one carrying about something like 200 and odd tons, 205 tons of propellant. That is number one. So it is our own manufactured two solid motors are the first things to ignite right. and lift the whole vehicle up. The second thing is the when the lift off is happening, the two nozzles have to come out of the steel structure on which it is sitting. Uh-huh. Something like about four meters they have to come out uh-huh. without hitting any partial. That means the initial thrust on both of them right. have to be so accurate not to create any tilt. Right. The third thing is at the time of takeoff from T minus two seconds uh-huh. to T plus about two to three seconds. Uh-huh. We pump about, for this particular launch, uh-huh. we pumped about 20 tons per second of water into the plumes of the two solid rocket motors uh-huh. to reduce the acoustics by six dB, five to six dB. Uh-huh. That means to reduce the whole acoustic power by one-fourth, right. that's two to one-fourth. And that's to re- reduce the vibration. Ah, and that is that is to reduce the acoustic uh, acoustic energy, uh-huh. which will excite vibrations in the launch vehicle. Right. So this has to uh, uh, occur very accurately at t minus 2.4 seconds, t right. plus 0.2 seconds, t right. plus two seconds, and at the same time, the water should not hit the launch vehicle. Right. <laughs> and These are the initial things when it takes off, and then. The whole launch vehicle control is decided upon how these two motors work as a match repair. If they work perfectly as matched pair, launch vehicle is success. If any of them creates an, a, a differential thrust uh-huh. between them, it will be very tough to control, especially during the tail-off period. That is the one part of it. The second part of it is the liquid stage. What we have is having 110 tons of propellant. So any incident yet or very near the launch pad Mm -hmm. like Antares or or the last proton or Soyuz (laughs) it it, it will be that is the type of things which will be in my mind in the last few seconds rather than what is exactly happening.
0: The, the two solid motors, a yes. bit like the space shuttle, they have to fire first, and then
1: the liquid engine. Uh, no, blow. liquid engine is ignited at something like hundred and ten seconds. Ten seconds in the so, light. Engine. So the whole vehicle can be moved by the solid rocket. Yes, yes, just by that. Because the GSLE Mark III launch vehicle, mm-hmm. experimental, we made one is one with respect to take takeoff mass. So it's about six hundred and twenty tons mass. So six hundred and twenty tons of mass to be lifted, we have to generate thousand tons of thrust. Five hundred each. Right. <laughs> so and each of them generate about something like initially six hundred and then they settle down to five hundred each. Right. So it's a it's a large thrust.
0: It's a very large thrust. And I think
1: there is some overlap between the, the liquid before the solid mode you're right. You're right. Before uh, something like about 20 seconds before the solid rockets burn out the liquid stage is ignited. And
0: why do you do it that way? You need to, uh, usually, um, you get the maximum thrust at the uh, uh, beginning because that's when you need acceleration. But of course, the troposphere causes some problems anyway, so you don't want to go to
1: maximum thrust there. And is there a particular reason why there is an overlap between the two Because, see, In the solid motor, as well as liquid motor, we are getting the control by tilting the nozzle. Okay? The the Yeah, gimbaling the nozzle. Yeah. Now, when we are in the last 15 seconds of the solid rocket burning, it is tailing off. Its thrust is coming down from 500 tons to 0 tons in a different way. And if both of them come in a different way, If one, at a a given time, we have a differential thrust of say, 100 tons, the control of that will not be sufficient. There should be augmented control. So, the L 110, we call it, liquid 110 tons stage, that nozzle dympathetic will help additional control. It's a steady control. The other two are unsteady control because of the unsteady thrust, Mm -hmm. whereas this one is a steady control.
0: So, it's just a bit
1: like in
0: aerodynamics when a a pilot, an airline pilot, comes in and there's a bit of crosswind, he will land at a higher speed than he would otherwise. Uh, What are the plans for developing uh, this site? You already have two launch facilities. Any plans to expand on that?
1: Here? Here? Yes, we have plans to expand because today we have capability to launch about... 8 launches per year, 4 launches from each launch pad. We have 2 launch pads, Uh 1st launch pad and 2nd launch pad. We can launch about 8 launches, of course all of them put together, PSLV, GSLV, GSLV Mark III, all of them put together we can make 8 launches. But we foresee that something like after 5 to 6 years when the GSLV and GSLV Mark III also become operational we may have a requirement of more than eight launches per year. So we are taking up, we have to take up manufacture of another, the I mean creation of a another launch pad facility. But before that, what we are doing is uh, we have a second launch pad. We integrate the launch vehicle in the vehicle assembly building, shift it to the or drive it to the launch pad uh-huh. and launch it. So we have already got a project approved in which we can build another vehicle assembly building. So that two vehicles we can prepare parallelly. So we can increase our launch rate because the launch vehicle assembly in the vehicle assembly building is about, it takes about three to four months. whereas. The launch pad, mm-hmm. we have an occupancy of only ten days. I see. Yeah. So if you have more, the vehicle assembly buildings, right. we can drive one after another to the launch. Pad. And you, when you're interacting with the professor Satish Dawan, yes, so. Professor Satish Dawan, practically uh, I walked under him till Professor Yorra was taken over as chairman. Yes. And uh, my uh, my my remembrance of. Uh, Process Satish is something like he's like something like a fatherly figure. Right. Okay. Yes. And when he fires us, and uh-huh. we don't do something proper, we feel as if some, uh, uh, my father is firing. <laughs> we never felt that my boss is firing. And I mean firing, the word you, usage of the word firing in India is a different uh, uh-huh. meaning than Western can use. Yes. There you fire means he's is out of the job. Here yeah, firing means yeah, you know, reprimand. Yeah, <laughs> a reprimand. Yes. Okay. So S R B three. So you work with Abdul Kalam as well. Yes. yes. What was he like? Yeah. It is a great experience working with uh, uh, Dr Abdul Kalam. Uh, I worked seven years under him in a B three program. He is, is a is a great motivator. I will say, and right. and truly. Team uh, building person. He builds teams. He puts them the targets. Targets which are much above their assessment capabilities so that they will rise further. And then he drives them. I one incident I remember very well was uh, one night around eleven o'clock. We are living in the same uh, lodge on a monthly rent basis rooms, he and B. So I had to make an urgent call somewhere. Uh So I went to his room because his room is the only room which had got a telephone at that time with, uh, you know, uh, intercity connection. Uh So he was reading something and I asked him, sir, I want to make a call. And I was just maybe less than a year in the Uh organization under He asked me please make a phone call and I finished the phone call in five minutes. Sir, so, thank you very much and I was about to leave. He said, no, 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 please sit, I want to talk to you. Then he talked to me from 11.30 to 2 o'clock in the morning and given me work for a month. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is the type of person and you never feel that he is giving you the work. Yes. When did you last meet? Uh, I met him last when the Mars orbit insertion, ah, I see, I see. in the September 2014 when we were in Bangalore. He came specially to meet all of us, wish all of us all the best at that time in met him. Of course he remembers me very well of course. because I worked long with him.
0: Before the slb 3 uh, Israel worked uh, with the French CMS. Yes. Um, Uh, developed, under
1: license, the Centaur
0: rocket
1: here. Were you involved in that as well? I, when I joined SLV3 beginning, there was some Centaur launch. But basically, I an electronics engineer at that time. So, I am not connected with the design and manufacture of Centaur rockets. But, one Centaur rocket was flown, one or two Centaur rockets were Uh flown, with the avionic systems as the payload. How do they perform? Very interesting was the immediately after join, the after one and a half year, one centaur rocket took off with nine avionics and electronics payloads like you know sequencer, sequences, various events, Uh the commanding system, uh, the the rocket tracking aid which we call transponder. Nine of them are flown and six of them fail. It's a different function. Right. And that is the time I found that uh, the electromagnetic interference uh-huh. is the basic cause of all the problems. Uh-huh. See. And when I approached immediate uh-huh. analysis of data, when I approached Kala uh-huh. and Madranai, saying that all these problems are because of electromagnetic interference, uh-huh. which was just evolving at the time. This this field itself was evolving. Yes. Previously, it was it used to be called RFI, right. Radio Frequency Interference. Uh-huh. Of course, a lot of work is done by US and other people, mm-hmm. but uh, in India we did do. So both Dr. Uh, Kalam and Madan Nayar, um, you know, they they encouraged me so much to work on that field. Right. Even today, right. Kalam remembers me as EMI EMC person, <laughs> <laughs> and the we, I was personally leading this activity. Right. We have introduced EMI design considerations, mm-hmm. EMI test facilities, electromagnetic compatibility solutions and so many things which, we, which made I will say, I will claim which made us extremely positive. Right. And when you were in Paris, I was wondering what perception you had
0: of how the Europeans saw Israel at that time in the 19...
1: 19- you see, when I was in um, in Europe, mm-hmm. it was 94 to 97 yen. Mm-hmm. At that time, we have not yet proven any big launch failure. Right. We had a number of satellites launched, mm-hmm. but the first uh, first launch of PSLV, mm-hmm. which failed, yeah. took off before I left in 93. Before mm-hmm. I left for Europe. Uh-huh. And when I was in Europe, there was the first success of PSNV in the ninety-four. as soon as maybe a few months after I reached there. So, there were a lot of questions to me. In fact, I still remember, BBC asked me a question. A poor country like India, why do you want to spend money on the development of the launch vehicles? Then there are so many launch vehicles in the world. And the answer I gave them is, when you develop aerial launch vehicle, there were so many launch vehicles in the world. <laughs> Why didn't you develop it? Okay. And I said, independent access to space is our aim. Number one. Number two, yes, there is poverty in India. Even today, there is a poverty in India. And poverty can be only solved by development. And our founding father, Professor Vikram Sarabhai, told us unless we master the latest technologies Mm -hmm. and put them to the use of the society and the progress of the society and the development of the country. Mm -hmm. That is the only route to solve the problem of poverty in a permanent way.
0: And that's how Europe and
1: uh, America have done? Yes. Anybody has done the same way Mm -hmm. in their old old histories. And the amount of uh, national GDP spent on the space program is very small. First of all, for almost from 1965 uh, up to something like 2000, something like 35 years, Mm -hmm. the total amount of money uh, which we have spent uh, for the space research in India is equivalent to one half of what US spent in say 90s per year. Per year, the the budget of NASA used to be about 15 billion dollars and we have spent hardly 7.5 billion dollars over 35 years (laughs) and then after 2005 our budget increased, today we have reached the stage of about 1 billion dollars per year. So this is the budget of, annual budget of ISRO today is 1 billion dollars per year and very important thing. I should say it's very important thing. When all the ESA, Japan, NASA, when all these space agencies are facing either no increase or cut in the budget. Uh-huh. In India at that time, that is what I am talking about 2005 to 2000 to 2010 during this period. Mm-hmm. ISRO annual budget was increasing minimum 15% per year and once 30% per year. Okay, Okay. Okay. so it quite dramatically the increase was there and that was required for these activities. (laughs) After SLV3, I joined launch vehicle project called ASLV, Augmented Satellite Launch Vehicle. Mm -hmm. That was a small launch vehicle Mm -hmm. with two strap-ons like what we have launched now. That was the SLV3 with the strap-ons. Yeah, with SLV3 with two strap-ons. We had two back-to-back failures and it was terrible time, yes. okay? Uh, so the whole ISRO had no confidence whether we will be successful in, in any mission or not. We found at that time that there are large number of things in the launch vehicle technology which we have learned from aerodynamics, shaping the thrust curve of the motors and the control Transition of the control from the strap-on stages to core stage and ignition of the core stage. Lot of things to learn. Till that time, the ignition, separation, changeover of control used to be at a prefixed time, which we used to prefix based on studying various things. So that was the time when I proposed that there should be an onboard computer. We have we had already an on- onboard computer to do the closed loop Uh guidance and the control, but we did not link it for the sequencing of the flight events. Mm -hmm. So that is the time I proposed that the computer should monitor the performance of the motors in real time and decide at what time the control should be changed over, at what time next stage has to be ignited, so that the flight will be very smooth. It was one of the turning points, I would say, in the development of launch vehicles. And it went through a number of reviews, maybe over four years. Nobody had a confidence it would work at that time. Uh-huh. But it was it a was concept which we have taken by just to look, study all other launch vehicles, how they do, mm-hmm. from the available public
0: literature
1: yeah. uh, right in the public domain. But we designed our own thing worked perfectly well and third launch of that ASLU was successful and that system is being used till today for all the launch vehicles. The the onboard computers every 20 millisecond monitors the performance of the motors, Mm -hmm. performance of the acceleration which this thrust gives to the vehicle and at what acceleration level or what thrust level Mm -hmm. a a stage has to be cut off, a stage has to be Transition has to take place to the next stage and controlled transition has to take place. This is one of the, I, for me personally, it's a highly satisfying thing. We have maybe about, at that time, on this system, hardly about 10 people worked. 10 people? 10 people worked on this system. But it's such a crucial thing. Of course, I don't say this is the only thing which made ASL successful there were five solutions which we have implemented between the second failed launch and third successful launch but this is one of the one of those five key solutions which worked and which made our launch vehicles very robust and reliable today the pslv is very reliable and because of this a workhorse, as it is yes. say, absolutely. Sorry, what is my perception of the European yeah, work What culture? do the Europeans think of uh, I think I should tell the European work culture is, is very good. You will see the people, uh, you know, highly, uh, very free and democratic with their colleagues, as if they are friends, till they enter into the office and joking, taking lunch together, taking dinner together. The moment they enter office, they will perfectly, they will be uh, maintaining the office discipline. And people who spend up to late night, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the dinner, you will see next day 7 o'clock jumping into the car and driving to their workplaces. Which is very, very difficult. The The one most important thing is the the work culture of Europe right. had developed from the industrial society. The work culture in India has developed from the agricultural society, which is a stage which Europe experienced during the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. So, the work culture in the agricultural society is sporadic. Ah, I see. Two months you work very hard, yeah. three months you wait for the whatever you plant to grow. Right. And give you the the results, and then again you work another one month very hard, and get all the things to your home. Right. So this is very sporadic nature of work, and very leisurely type of work. Uh-huh. And if the rain is there, you don't need to work, and when after the rain is over, you have to work. It's a entirely different thing. And from that, when we have to evolve into a very systematic, industrial, production type of work. Uh-huh. It takes a, a large amount of effort to change this culture. In fact, I will say, yeah. whether it is Professor Vikram Sarabhai or Dhawan yeah. or You Are Wrong yeah. or Dr. Kasturi Rangan, Madhavan I think this is this cultural transition yeah. between our agricultural background of yeah. the society yeah. to a very highly precision demanding type of work in rocketry and satellite. Uh-huh. I think this is their biggest challenge that you are managing us. You know, that's very enlightening. I could not have understood that without actually being
0: here and talking to you because it's so, as you say, it's so cultural. When you came back from Paris, you took over at uh, the master control facility as director. So, just want to understand uh, when rocket... Uh, Satellite is launched from here to GTO. Um, What happens to them? When does the transfer of command move from Sierra Carta to Ticket Hassan? What stage does that transition take place?
1: Uh, There will be an overlap. Mm -hmm. The data which is collected by tracking of the launch vehicle in Ah. in its trajectory Mm -hmm. and estimating what will be the initial orbit is transferred in real time through a network to the other station. So, Mars Control Facility receives from Sri the initial orbit and while it is in the trajectory itself, it can see the satellite Mm -hmm. and the moment they get that orbit, from then onwards they take over. It is very clear. So, you told me earlier what? Uh, all the activities you perform here
0: in the integration, and preparing for launch and the launch gets into the, uh, the transfer orbit. Then you hand it over to Master Control Facility. What sort of things do is Master Control Facility responsible for then
1: I will say among all the director's seats in this room, the hardest seat is the to Master Control Facility. <laughs> yes, I see. Because there are, today, there are 15 satellites under control of Master Control Facility. 15? And every satellite, after putting, after being in GSO, you have to do north-south station keeping, east-west station keeping, temperature control, eclipse management of the batteries, and meet any emergencies, and payload requirements. This is the type of thing. Of course, when I joined MCF, this many satellites were not there. When I joined, there hardly four satellites. When I left MCF, there were ten satellites in orbit. In seven years, we launched nine satellites. You could think of, in seven years, nine satellite operations. And the most important thing is, the launch vehicle puts the satellite into GTO. And GTO to GSO, transition is something like 1.6 kilometers per second velocity addition using the satellite propulsion system. Very very demanding thing, demanding operations. I can I I am uh, very fond of telling this to everybody. Right before I was in NBSA because all our transponders are being used for reset networks, for TV, for DT heads, so many so many things. Two two big things we have faced. One is Personally, before I went to MCM, when I was watching a TV, and there is a disturbance in the TV program what I am seeing, I used to switch off and read some book or see. Right. <laughs> After I went to MCM, the moment there is a disturbance in the TV channel what I am observing, I used to jump into my car and go to the office to find out. Which satellite, which payload, which transponder is misbehaving? <laughs> Why is this misbehaving? Right. Which fellow is uplinking wrongly? Right. That is one part. But more important, as an organization, something happened between, I joined 1998 and CF, but something happened in the whole world between 2000 and 2004. Oh, up till that time, most of the places it's a TV and each TV channel required one full transponder. So if we, at that time, if we had 10 TV channels, we we used to have 10 10 transponders occupied. Mm -hmm. And used to be the rate, the lease rate at that time used to be two and a half million dollars per year. That's in Indian rupees about 12 crores per year. Within that four years, digital technologies have come. Digital TV has come and such a fast way it has become 10 to 15 channels per transponder and the because of the competition among the different communication satellite operators mm-hmm. the price has fallen from two and a half million dollars per year per transponder to one million dollar per year per transponder from 2004 till now it's the same rate that we need one million dollar per year per transponder so Fifteen channels in one transporter and the rate has fallen from two and a half million dollars to one million. So, something like 30 times the revenue has fallen. The demand has fallen by 30 times. Many companies wound it up and big companies like IntelSAT, SES, all these people have acquired the small, small companies and we survived because of the government organization, government company. And till that time, the people used to fight in India to get a transponder. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, in 2002, I started getting back the transponders. They are surrendering (laughs) to me back. Right. And how to use them. That was the time, very tough for the organization. And we survived. But right now, I thought there was a shortage of transponders. In in terms mm -hmm. of the demand. demand No, no. no. At that time, this was the situation. Today, yes, we have, we have, 200 transponders, and demand is more than 500, okay? Of course, we have to catch it. Fascinating. That is the MCF uh, MCF part of my job, okay? One other aspect, fascinating aspect
0: of your experience is that um, you were with the United Nations Committee on Peaceful Purposes of Outer Space, and UN, sorry, United States, China, Russia, They've dem- these other nations, China, US, um, Russia, all demonstrated to some ex- extent their interest, shall we say, in uh, ASATs, these anti-satellite systems. And during the experiments that they've conducted, they generated a lot of debris. And space debris is another area of your interest. I'm just wondering, how do you see things like space debris
1: situations now? Is it getting worse? Or is it better the last 10 years? There are two aspects. Of course, what you said was right. The ASAT test of uh, China, 2007, and the ASAT test of… It's, it's not exactly ASAT. The USA said it is, it is destroying one of its satellites because it has got a lot of propellant and it is uh, almost re-entering the orbit. They shot it down. So both these things have created debris, but I think the, the large amount, 40% of the debris has come from the explosions of the unused uh, final stage, the unusual propellant in the final stage of the launches and the defunct satellites. They explode because the temperature increases and the pressure increases inside and the, the propellant tanks explode. So, ASAC of China, even though it had created about 2,000 pieces of debris, roughly, uh, I still think that 40% of the debris were historically. Historically, if you see, the number of launches made by Russia or ex USSR and USA are the largest number in be- between 1957-58 till yeah. 1985 mm-hmm. or 90. These are the basic, the old ones left in the orbit are the basic source of the generation of the debris. As far as a tests are concerned, we are not much in, much involved because ISRO purely works for the peaceful purposes of outer yes. space. But any country which has got a capability to precisely launch a satellite into an orbit also has got a capability. Two. Let's
0: try a exactly. second. Yeah. One the most recent GSLV 3 test was very successful. In fact, it was two experiments, the GSLV 3 launch vehicle itself. And on top of that was the crew module, which wasn't occupied in this test experiment. I saw many people, the online launch, and then the um, return of the module, which was in the sea, and in the Navy, we it. We didn't see any pictures of the module coming down in parachutes or indeed splashdown. Do you know if there's any plans to release photos of that
1: stage of the test? There are two things here which I want to make very clear to you. Number one, what we have flown is not crew module. It's a crew module model. It is weight simulated, Mm -hmm. shape simulated, an external thermal protection system, same as the final crew module, and the deceleration system with parachutes is same, but inside is not like a crew module. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, yes, we have photographs of the crew module coming down with parachutes, etc., which we have, which we can show. Then the third thing is the, the basic nature of this test was only to test the atmospheric phase of the launch vehicle. That is the primary object. And the re-entry? No. Our primary objective is to test the two solid strap-on motors and L-110 stage Mm -hmm. and its ascent up to 70 kilometers, the most important region in the launch vehicle, launch vehicle's trajectory. Uh Our primary objective is to test the atmospheric phase of this launch vehicle. And that was perfectly successful. We had an excellent flight. The secondary objective is because we are making it a, a ballistic trajectory, a re-entry opportunity is available, we had put the this crew module model. And the crew module model, whatever information we get, at that velocity, at 5.3 kilometers per second velocity when you are entering, real crew module will enter at almost 8 kilometers per second. This entered at 5.3 kilometers per second. See. So, heat flux is less. But we want to study that. So, that experts are going to study. See. The third point is the human space program a manned missions uh-huh. is not yet approved by the government of India. At the moment. We have not got the approval for any manned mission. Uh-huh. And we have got within our small budget of ISRO. Some money we have kept aside to develop certain technologies. Part of it is this, uh, the thermal protection system of the crew module model. Mm-hmm.
0: Right.
1: That the, the story stops there as a... Right. Okay?
0: Thank you very much for clarifying that very clearly. Just last question. It's a very uh, busy, very productive and very successful year, 2014. We're in the beginning of uh, January 2015. And I know things change. It's the nature of the business that you were in. But right now, what do you envisage will happen in 2015 within Israel? 2015,
1: we'll have two more launches of PSNV with IR and NASA's de ENF. So we have already three of them in orbit. Fourth one and fifth one we'll be putting into orbit. That is definite. We also have a plan to launch AstroSat, which is the Astro Astronomy Satellite Uh in multiple frequency bands, Uh which is ready. Uh Then we are also working for the next GSLV launch with the indigenous cryostage, stage, so second launch of the indigenous cryostage. stage. So if it is successful, then we will be stabilizing in the GSLV uh, history. So at least I see about 3 to 4 lunches and 4 to 5 lunches per year is a very, very busy period as far as Sathya's space center is concerned because everybody will be busy almost all through the year.
0: Dr. Prasad,
1: I could sit here
0: and talk to you for hours. I know you have uh, other duties as well. For the moment, I am very grateful for your time. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.